very much. Welcome everyone. It's a joy to see everybody here this morning. And we're looking forward to a wonderful time of fellowship in God's Word here as we continue on in our study of the life of David. And today, hearing from David's mouth himself as this Holy Spirit inspired these words of Psalm 59. If you would like to turn there, please, that would be great. And you can follow along with me as I read Psalm 59. And I would ask that if you're able, if you would stand for the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Psalm 59. Entitled to the choir master, according to do not destroy a miktam of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Yahweh, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Yahweh, God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Yahweh, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O oh, my strength, I will watch for you. And for you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. My God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please do be seated. So last week, as you may remember, we uh, were looking at 1 Samuel chapter 19 and finding there uh, the account of how David escaped, uh, escaped with the help of his wife. It was kind of help. Um, it was maybe not super helpful help, except for actually letting him down out of the window. The rest of what she did sort of made things worse. But nonetheless, I, I'm sure it was well meant. But uh, David was able to escape the clutches of Saul, who had set a watch about his house, watching for him, waiting to uh, 
capture him and kill him. And we noted some things about David's situation last week. He had, it seems like, if we read, read, are reading the text there going on, it seems like he's gotten married. If, if indeed the Mosaic economy code was followed, he would have had basically a year off from going to war. So he's had a honeymoon. He's had this time for uh, getting to know his wife. And clearly when he's in trouble, where does he run? He runs home. Clearly there's some comfort there, some joy there, some peace there. Um, he had been working steadily, uh, doing his, his uh, uh, music ministry, if I can call it that, uh, in the court of Saul. Been doing that, uh, uh, just had continued that. There was a, uh, a routine about that. There was a comfort in that, a, a joy in that, no doubt, as David loved singing praises to his God. And just even thinking, you know, Saul has vowed in Yahweh's name that he will not harm me. Everything's been going well. Haven't had any spears chucked at me lately. And yet all of those areas of comfort evaporated when David went out to war again, has great victory, and Saul's jealousy returns in a tidal wave. And Saul once again tries to pin David to the wall. I would not have wanted to be Saul's interior decorator. It would be constantly filling holes in the walls. He's throwing spears at people. Um, We don't know if he threw it at anybody else, but we know that he did at David and would eventually do it even at his own son, Jonathan. So all of that goes away. And you might wonder, and I'm sure David may have wondered, Lord, it's been going so well. Seems like I know I've been called, I've been commissioned to be the next king of Israel, but it uh, doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. He settles into his routine. But, but Yahweh has some other plans for David. Yahweh needs to move David out of his comfort zone. And Yahweh has a what seems to us to be a very strange way of doing it. Moving David out at the point of a spear and at the end of a rope to escape his father-in-law's rage. And uh, so we were talking a little bit about that whole idea of coming to grips with David's uh, dilemma and ours as well. When our God shakes up our world, knocks the feet out from under us, and we're sitting there trying to figure out what's happening and what's next. Without bitterness, without rebellion, and without fear. It's a tall order, isn't it? And as I mentioned last week, we haven't heard a whole lot directly from David. A little bit when, uh, you know, during that Goliath incident, and he's talking back and forth to Saul and talking to the soldiers there and asking what's going on. And um, that is pretty much it. He hasn't really uh, uh, been speaking too much, a little bit to Jonathan. But now we see that David has not been silent. By the title of this psalm that I just read, you can tell that this was written on the occasion of this very incident. 
And so we can really get a glimpse into this man who is said to be after God's own heart as to how he is dealing with Yahweh's sovereignly turning his life upside down. And so we're going to spend some time here thinking about, all right, what do we do when the comforts of duty, service, when the comforts of home and family and the comforts of relationships and expectations all evaporates? It's, it's I don't know about you, but I, I can tell you that my own experience, it's very easy to find my comfort more readily in the, my daily routines and in the friendships and the relationships and the comforts that I have there. It's, it'd be very easy to just cling on to those things and think that I'm clinging on to God when I'm really not. So when human protectors fail you, when circumstances rock your world, where do you turn? Especially when Yahweh's efforts to shape your life bring you discomfort for a time. David here is facing a life and death dilemma, isn't he? His world was in shambles. And in his response here in, in Psalm 59, we learn a lot about David's mindset. But even more, we learn about the Lord that he was trusting. This psalm is shaped by three sets of responses. They're all in multiples of three. Sometimes it's just three. Sometimes it's lots more, but it's multiples of three. As we go through them, I'll point these out to you. And they will provide the larger framework for seeing some of the details that are here. Now, first of all, though, we need to see what David is seeing. David is not looking at this shakeup in his world and just dusting it off as if it's no big deal. As if, ah, well, you know, this too shall pass. A lot of people saying that these days. Um, while it's true that this too shall pass, David is not writing these things off as inconsequential. He's recognizing that he's in serious trouble. A friend of mine back in Pennsylvania, a fellow pastor, likes to say, that uh, in situations like this, this person is in deep kimchi. If you know what kimchi is and how it's prepared, you'll know what that means. Buried deep and rotting. (laughs) It's not good. David's in deep kimchi. Thanks, Pastor Ben Robinson, for that. The forces that Yahweh uses to move you out of your comfort zone can truly be fearful. And so it is the case here. Notice in verse 1, the opposition that is against him is definitely organized. They are rising up against David. And that speaks to the idea of there's a plan. This is not a random act of violence against David. Organized opposition. And it's evil in purpose. Look at to their working evil. There's a, an eagerness to destroy David. Now, as many, I, we mentioned this, uh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, I guess, as many people 
that were delighted with David and just thought David was the best thing ever because of his victories on the battlefield against the Philistines. There were, besides Saul, there were others also who were jealous of him, who desired his downfall. They weren't up to snuff, but he was doing the job and he was getting the accolades and getting the praise and they didn't like it. And so they uh, were eager to destroy him and, and not just destroy him politically or destroy him socially. Notice what it says here. Save me from bloodthirsty men there in verse two. They were out for blood. They weren't playing games. This was a life and death struggle. But they were, as, as the wicked often are, um, not upfront about it, at least maybe not to the general population. But notice what it says, they lie in wait, verse 3. They lie in wait for me. And in verse 5, uh, the latter part, um, they are treacherously plotting evil. They are, they are going about these things in secret. They're being subversive. They're trying to undermine David's support network. They are uh, making sure that no one can come to help him as they're surrounding the house. They're trying to make sure that he can't escape. Probably, I, I can't help but thinking some of the, you know, the old, uh, the old cop shows on TV where you have the not-so-subtle guys leaning against the lamppost across the street from the guy they're watching kind of thing thinking they're being all secret and everything. Who knows how secret this was, but it does seem that Saul was not intent about just going in in force, which he could have done. We talked about that last week. He could very easily have just marched in, grabbed David, and taken him. Why Saul didn't do that, we don't know. It's not, we're not told. He seems to trying to, you know, be subtle about it. Doesn't want to create a stir. After all, what happens when the king takes the national hero and goes and slaughters him. It wouldn't do Saul much good, politically speaking, at least in some circles. So it goes about it in secret, just trying to subvert everything. And notice also in verse 3, the, the nature of, of those that were opposition, in opposition against him. These are fierce men who are stirring up strife. There's a mob mentality about this. They're trying to whip up opposition to David in certain circles. Some of that is out of a desire to preserve themselves because if they can get enough people thinking that what they're doing is right, then that excuses them in their own mind of any wrongdoing. But uh, it's also the mark of, a, even though they're fierce men in some respects, there's a certain uh, aspect of cowardice here as well. Um, cowards love the mob, mob mentality. It's easier than thinking and, and um, doing what is right. But oh, they are full of themselves. Look at verse 7. There they are, bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us as is so often uh, among the wicked, it's the, the common thing is there's no God in heaven. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to care. I'm going to do my own thing. And that seems to be 
their attitude. See this also in verse 12, where David prays that they would be trapped in their pride. So they're arrogant. They're proud. They think that they're above the law, above reproach, uh, uh, past any accountability to anyone. They are just intent upon their wicked purposes. And they are intent upon it. They're very persistent. We see that also in verse 7. Actually, really starting in verse 6. Each evening they come back. They're howling like dogs. They're bellowing. Um, Verse uh, um, 14 as well. Repeated. Each evening they come back. They're not letting up. They're not letting up. They are intent and persistent in their wickedness. So this is a fearful situation that David's in the midst of. Now you and I aren't, uh, aren't often in danger of our lives from those who are gathered around us. But we do face opposition, do we not? We face the opposition, first of all, of our adversary in our own hearts as, as uh, the temptations that are so readily available around us pound in upon us. And like these fierce and wicked and persistent men that surrounded David's house, we are beset by our own sins, by our own, uh, our own um, uh, wickedness, our own weakness. And then there are those when we do stand for righteousness who will uh, malign us and work against us, work at cross purposes against us, sometimes secretly, sometimes not so secretly, but with an intention uh, not just to derail us, not to just de- discredit us, but to, to utterly destroy our ability to ever do anything again for righteousness' sake in this world. And we see that on personal levels. We see that in civic levels. We see that on larger, uh, in the larger political scheme of things as well as just morality, uh, that's, uh, God's morality that's under attack everywhere we look. What is David's response to this, and what should our response? Here, I'm going to point out to you the first set of responses here. It begins at verse 1. And it's verse 1 and 2. Here you have, in this first set, you have um, four petitions. Deliver me from my enemies. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. And then as you continue on, you find there in verse 4, the prayer, awake, come to meet me. In verse 5, rouse yourself to punish the nations. In verse 11, kill them not. Make them totter. Verse 12, let them be trapped. Verse 13, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. What are all of those? They're all prayers. Every one of them. This first set of responses is prayer. Now, that kind of seems like one of those Captain Obvious things, doesn't it? And when we face these things, we should be going to prayer. The kind of things that David is praying for... uh, is uh, are, are such things as deliverance, 
prays for that four times, verses 1 and 2. He's praying for presence. He's awake. Rouse yourself. Be, be present with me. So that I'm not alone in facing this dilemma, this challenge. And then six times uh, he, he prays for righteous judgment upon the enemy of God and his people. We're not, we're not, we're used to praying to be delivered. We, we want to be delivered out of the problems we're in. We're, we're Lord be with me. We, that's a common prayer for us. We don't often pray for judgment because we've been convinced by a weak need liberal version of Christianity that it's so unloving to pray for judgment on anybody. And yet David does it with frequency. Is he being unloving? Or is he actually loving God more than men? Because ultimately, what these who are in opposition against him are doing is not so much opposing David. They're opposing God himself. God is the one who has anointed David to be the next king. David didn't ask for it. God did it. So when they're trying to destroy God's anointed, that's a problem. It's really shaking their fist at, a mo- at the Most High God. So the, the forces that Yahweh uses, though, they can be fearful. And they should drive us to prayer, drive us to the end of ourselves, drive us to call out unto the Lord, praying again and again that He would be exalted and that we would be delivered. But with these prayers comes reflection upon who God is, who this God is that you are coming to. And when you trust Him, as David does, then the peace that Yahweh gives you overcomes your fear. What does that trust look like? And we see this laid out for us beautifully. And I won't take time to go point by point, but if you, you might notice, those of you that are detail-oriented, that there are seven items under that first point characteristics of the fearful enemy. And under this trust point, there are seven items. And it's remarkable how they parallel and give an answer to each of those points of fearfulness that our opposition often has. The or- For example, I'll just kind of, I won't do this each time or we'll never get through this this morning. But just as an example, under organized opposition, you think about that. The opposition is gathered. They've got a plan. They put things. Somebody's at the head of it. Somebody's putting, you know, pulling the strings, pushing the buttons, whatever you, you know, imagery you want to use. Somebody's controlling this thing. What is the answer? Look at verse five. You, Yahweh, God of hosts. This would be Elohim of hosts, the Almighty One. You, the I Am, Almighty One of hosts, are the Almighty One of Israel. With the prayer to punish all the nations. Also, in uh, verse 8, 
You, O Yahweh, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Verse 13. They may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. What is the answer to the organized opposition of the wicked? It's the absolute sovereignty of God. David recognizes God's sovereignty over the nations, over every detail of this. Sovereignty is this huge source of comfort to us if we can grasp it and submit ourselves to it. If David had been trusting his own means of escape, what did he have? He had a wife who told really stupid lies and did, you know, hit a hit a family idol under a bed. Let's see, what else did he have? Well, he was able to jump out a window. But even that didn't help him much as Saul would pursue him and pursue him and pursue him and pursue him. If David was trusting in his own ability to escape, and we'll see as we continue on through his life that he never did. He trusted God to deliver him because he knew of the God who had called him, the God who had commissioned him, the God who had protected him, the God who had provided for him, the God who had guided him at every step was taking care of this as well. And David goes to the, the I'll call it the extreme of, say, of, of pointing out God's sovereignty over the big stuff, over the nations, of which he was just a small part. David saw himself very much in the uh, sovereign hand of a holy God. That trust also showed itself in David's desire for righteous judgment. The wicked were evil in their purpose. David was calling for God to stand in righteousness. We see that also in verse 5. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. And verses 12 and 13, pointing out the sin of their mouths, their pride, their cursing, their lies, because of their rejection of the Most High God. So he desired righteous judgment. This, was, this is not the petty, uh, selfish, I'm going to get back at you, uh, vengeance of, of a, a guy who's going solo. This is a man who recognizes that the sovereign God and his honor have been slandered. Have been rebelled against. And what he's praying for is absolutely right. Because the wages of sin are death. And David knows it. So he's desiring righteous judgment. And notice in verse 9, Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. I love this. What, what does trust look like? This readiness, this eagerness to seek out God. I, I, in my notes, I have here uh, with this, because literally it's talking about a careful watchfulness. I'm, I'm saying, you know, pay, he pays attention to what God is doing. He's waiting to see. Those of you that have, uh, have met my dog, Gunner, will know if you've watched him at all when he's in my presence. He is walking along, 
and he's constantly looking. He's always got to, what are you doing? Where are you going? Where are you going? I, 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 I want to be there with you. I want to be there with you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, you're going that way. Oh, okay. Oh. It's that kind of paying attention. I'm not going to let you out of my sight. <laughs> if I get out of his sight, he panics. Where'd he go? But that's, kind of the, that's kind of the idea here. That David is, is, is I'm going, I've, got my, I've got my eyes open and I'm watching your every move, God. And I want to respond to that. I want to be where you are. That's what trust looks like. And the reason that David can do that is found in the second set of responses um, where th- these are repeated three times. By the way, the, the prayers, that, that response, there's 12 of those. It's multiple of three. This one, is, uh, this one is, there's three of these here. Uh, begin at verse 10. Our clue is a repetition of the phrase steadfast love or in the Hebrew chesed. Speaking of God's covenant loyalty. And in verse 10, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. And in verse 16, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. And in verse 17, you are the God who shows me steadfast love. This second overall response. Yes, as we poured out our hearts in prayer to our God when we are in distress, when we are discomfited, when we don't know which end is up. The second response after pouring out our hearts that way is trust and confidence in God's faithfulness. In his loyalty to his children, his loyalty to his promises, his loyalty to his very character, which can never fail. And notice Uh, David's confidence here. Being confident in this covenant loyalty. Verse 10. Now, as I read this, think where you've heard some of these words before. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. We heard that in this psalm before. How about verse 4? Prayer. Awake, come to meet me. And David is absolutely confident that his God, this covenant God, the I Am, will indeed come and meet him. He's confident of God's loyalty to be present with his children. He's confident of that answered prayer. Verse 16 the, the steadfast love is in the context of strength. He knows that God's power will not be thrown away and wasted or set on the shelf in his regard, but God will be faithful to exercise his strength to deliver him because God is faithful. And then finally in verse 17, he knows that God is uh, loyal in revealing himself And in Revelation in general, when he says, you're the God who shows me steadfast love, who shows me that loyalty, that covenant loyalty that cannot fail. How does God show David that? Well, in his word, but also in deed. You might remember at the Goliath incident when Saul was telling David, well, how are you going to go against this guy? You know, you're... You're just a kid. 
He's been a soldier since he was a kid. How are you going to do this? Do you remember what David said? Well, I'll show you. you know, yeah, I've been practicing. <laughs> what did he say? He said, let me tell you about the lions and the bears that have come and attacked my flock and how God gave me the strength to do what needed to be done to protect my flock. And I was able to slay the lion and the bear by the power of God's hand. Even though David talked about what he had done, he never gave himself credit for it. He recognized that God had revealed himself, not just, I will be with you, but God really was with him. And David was confident that God was continuing to be with him. And so would not despair. He was confident in that covenant loyalty. The next one is one that, again, sometimes we might feel a little uncomfortable talking about because it feels self-serving somehow. And yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David here in this psalm, as he does in other psalms as well, like in Psalm 38 that we read, we've sung this morning, and Psalm 40, which we read together. Very similar themes in these psalms. As those that were unjustly attacking him, accusing him, lying about him. You know, when, when someone attacks you in that way, reviles your name, accuses you of all kinds of things falsely, what's your first reaction? I'm going to fix this. I'm going to answer this. I'm going to show you. That's the response of our flesh. That's the response of our own pride. David, however, and this is part of his prayers as well, um, he recognizes that it's through no transgression or sin of mine, no fault of mine, he says in verses 3 and 4. He's not claiming to be sinless, but he's saying that in, in, in regards to what is being thrust upon him, he is guiltless. He's done nothing to deserve this. And so he prays, verse 10, <clears throat> that he might be able to look in triumph on his enemies. And in verse 12, he wants them to be trapped in their pride for their own sin, all the lies that they do, all the lies that they say about him. And he asks that they would be consumed. How can David say that and not be accused of just wanting petty vengeance? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about a few moments ago. The insults against David, the lies against David. Yes, they were a personal affront to him. But his honor is a reflection of God's honor. The opposition was really working against God. The insult was really against Yahweh. So our vindication is his vindication, is Yahweh's vindication in the eyes of the world. David is desiring God's glory by the Lord working to show that David is innocent of these things and that those that are saying these lies and working against him to destroy him will be justly punished. He is desiring vindication in that way. 
Because he trusts that God is working for his own glory. And when we trust that the sovereign God is working towards his own glory, then when we get attacked in that way, um, don't say it's easy, but it's, a, it's easier to rest in the knowledge that he will not suffer his name to be drugged through the, the mud indefinitely. He will act. Sixth one, trust, trust in his power to deliver you. Now this one is, uh, if you want to think of it as uh, in uh, contrast to the uh, characteristic of the opposition of being arrogant, the opposite of arrogance is humility, right? Again, David's not taking matters into his own hands. There are other times in his life, which we will see, that he does, and the results are usually not so good when he does that. But in this case, he is just expressing through, first of all, the initial prayers that we had there, verses 1 and 2, but also in 9, oh, you're my strength, you're my fortress. Verse 11, uh, you're our, you are our shield. 16, uh, the, you're my strength. You've been to me a fortress. You're a refuge. Over and over again, they're, they're through, particularly through the repetition of the fortress imagery, David is recognizing that the only way he will be delivered is by hiding in his Lord and resting in him. That's it. So he has that trust in God's power to deliver him. And finally then, as we think about what this trust looks like, Verses 16 and 17, we find the final set of general overarching responses. The first one's been prayer, and it's been peppered throughout this whole passage. And then we had also spread throughout the passage in those different verses, expressing the second, having prayed, we now trust in his covenant loyalty. We know that he will not fail us. And finally, we have this beautiful conclusion to this psalm again remembering remembering what the circumstances are he's had to be let down through a window on a rope to escape the citadel of Saul the fortress of Saul the stronghold to escape that where is he running to the fortress of his God and what does he do he praises again and again and again. Three times repeated here. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. I will sing praises to you. Oh, for you, O oh God, are my fortress. So he glorifies God in the midst of this. Think about your own response to trials and particularly when they really rock your world and mess up your neat and tidy plans and comfort level. Do you think, well, I'm just going to praise God? It's often, I hope you do, but it's often not our first response. And sometimes it's not there at all until sometimes we have to be reminded of it. So consider this your reminder. Pour out your heart unto the Lord and pray for His deliverance. Pray for 
vindication. Pray for judgment upon God's enemies. Pray for God's glory. But then as you trust Him, let that issue forth into praise in your mouth. Praising Him for His strength. Praising Him for His faithfulness. Praising Him for His deliverance. When David penned these words, let me ask you this question. Was he delivered from Saul? No. I mean, he dodged the bullet, or the spear, as the case may be. But that pursuit of the enemy would continue on. He was not fully delivered from Saul until Saul was killed on the battlefield. And even then, because of Saul's children and family and all the intrigues and all those things that went on, there was still opposition. So how could David pray? And how can you and I pray? I praise you for your deliverance. It's pretty easy, actually. Because where does David start? He doesn't start with praising him for circumstances that worked out well. He praises God for being God. And that put everything else in perspective. Now, Psalm 59 is, in the title there we see that it is a miktam. Now, uh, we see this word uh, repeated in a number of different psalms. The, uh, the meaning of that word is a little on the vague side, but it's basically it means a writing of David. The word means writing. And there's a different form of the word, though, uh, coming out of the same root that can be translated crushed, which to me gives some color to this idea of this particular style of writing. A miktam is a particular style of writing, particularly in times of distress, if I'm adding up all of those components properly. Now, again, this style of writing, this form of writing, is not an isolated response on David's part. We see that word, that style repeated, and, and, the, and just as I, as I already mentioned a little bit earlier, even if it doesn't say miktam, the idea of crying out to God in distress, looking for his deliverance, is something that we've already seen in Psalm 38 this morning, in Psalm 40, here in Psalm 59, and in many, many other psalms as well. As David finds himself in a pickle over and over again, and the Lord delivers him, and he cries out for the Lord's deliverance and experiences that deliverance. Uh, this may have been the first miktam. This is early in David's career. Um, if it's not the first one, it's a very early one. David uses this form often, as I said. And he's not afraid to use even the same tune. So this is, this is set according to Do Not Destroy, which is the tune name, presumably. That same formula, that tune, um, he uses it for three, he uses it for three different psalms. Psalm 57, Psalm 58, and this one, Psalm 59. And uh, then Asaph, who would come later, he would also use that tune for Psalm 75, but we're not going to talk about Asaph today. But what that tells me, and sometimes we look at these 
Sometimes we look at the titles and we just think, oh, well, that's interesting. Let's get to the good stuff. But the titles are there for a reason. They're uh, inspired as well. So why is that there? Why are these details recorded for us here? What it tells me is that this response of crying out to God in faith during times of distress is a habitual one and a tune which I wish we had it, which we would find the music to this somewhere. It would be pretty awesome. Uh, tunes, uh, tunes are not just an accident related to singing. Did anybody, as we sang Psalm 38, a psalm of singing in praise, in, uh, out of distress to God, did, any, did anything about the tune we sang strike you? It's a minor key. It is heart-wrenching minor key. You can't sing those words to a happy, happy, happy little tune. It doesn't work. There are things you can sing to a happy, happy, happy little tune, but not that. It's one of my favorite Welsh tunes. just love that thing. To sing it 12 times, that was great. But David uses this same tune, Do Not Destroy, which I'm pretty sure was in a minor key. Just a surmise on my part. He uses it again and again. It tells me that David returns to familiar responses of prayer, of trust, of praise, to remind him of God's faithfulness in adversity, even when that adversity is administered by the sovereign hand of God in such a way that it turns our world upside down. When God moves you out of your comfort zone, may he help you to respond in the same way, to the same end, habitually praising, trusting, praying unto him, for his glory and for your peace as you hide in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this precious psalm that David penned for us at some point following this horrific series of events. Lord, I wonder how many times the words of this, this psalm return to his mind as similar situations would happen later on in his life. And yet always he comes to the same conclusion. <clears throat> that you are God, there is none else, that he is safe in you, and therefore he will praise. Lord, no matter what is turning our world upside down right now, Lord God, drive us to our knees before you. Help us to trust you and your promises. And give us grace to praise you with full hearts for what you are and what you do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.